Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our copies of God's Word together, please, to Romans chapter 10. We're in verses 5 through 13 this morning. The title of the message is The Way of Salvation. The Lord Jesus, in His famous Sermon on the Mount, spoke of two ways or two paths that people seek salvation upon. One of those paths is very narrow. It's entered to two through a small gate, a turnstile in our own English vernacular. Uh, in a turnstile, you can't bring in baggage. You can't bring in trophies. That's the point, that you have to come in alone on his terms. The other road or path is wide, the very big gate. You can take all your belongings on it if you choose. And there along that path, you're going to be following the herd because most of the people are on that path. But the problem, as we saw last Sunday, is that that particular wide road leads to hell. And the narrow, difficult path leads to heaven. And even though throngs of humanity for millennia have been on that broad path, many of whom are very sincere in their belief that it will lead them to heaven, they're sincerely wrong. The metaphor is not difficult to understand that Jesus gives. The way of salvation is through faith in Christ alone. It's the only road to heaven. Jesus said of himself, I am the way. That is to say, the only way to get to heaven is to have the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to your account. Every other attempt to get to heaven is works righteousness, human achievement. What Paul calls here the righteousness that is by the law. That's the broad road, but it leads to hell. Now, this was the issue that the Apostle Paul was dealing with here in this section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. Specifically, Paul was explaining why it is that the vast majority of Jewish people, God's chosen people, rejected Jesus as their Messiah and their Savior. In chapter 9, Paul gives God's perspective on the question. He says it didn't surprise him. In fact, all of this was according to his sovereign plan of election. But from the human perspective here in chapter 10, Paul says it's because they did not pursue God's kind of righteousness in the right way. Rather than pursuing it by faith, they pursued it through self-righteousness and therefore missed it. So there you have it again, the two roads of life. Road one, self-righteousness works. Law leads to hell. Road two, humble faith in Christ leads to heaven. So let's continue in that theme this morning by reading our text. Romans chapter 10 beginning in verse 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, we will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, and who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. 
For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of these words. As has been Paul's MO throughout this letter of Romans, he brings the Old Testament scripture as evidence of the truthfulness of his arguments. In our text today, he quotes three prophets, Moses, Isaiah, and Joel. And he begins by quoting Moses in verse 5, the implications of works righteousness. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. You remember that Paul uses the term righteousness and salvation interchangeably in the book of Romans. We're going to see in a moment, while there's a little nuance of difference, but they're really two sides of the same theological coin. What Paul is doing, he's holding up once again the contrast between the two ways that human beings try to be made right with God. And if you want to write the theme of the entire book of Romans writ large, it is that. How can a man or a woman be made right with God? Well, the first way human beings try to be made right with God is by human effort. Works righteousness, law keeping, it all means the same. So Paul is quoting from the Old Testament book of Leviticus, particularly chapter 18, verse 5, where Moses is telling the people right before they go in the promised land, remember God's not going to let Moses go, but he's giving them last minute instructions and warnings about not disobeying God. And he's telling them to obey God's law that he had received up on Mount Sinai. And so let me just read Leviticus 18.5. Moses says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. Now Moses is not saying that you can get to heaven by keeping these rules. He's saying if you will obey God in the land that he's sending you, your life will be prosperous and he'll protect you from your enemies. And of course the people didn't do that either. So Paul is saying that if you want to pursue God's righteousness through human effort and achievement or the law, you're welcome to do so. But here's the caveat. You have to do it perfectly. You can't sin even once. You have to live by it totally. If that's the decision you make to go down that broad road, even one sin is enough to trip you up. Well, it's not just those who don't know any better. Sometimes Christians who've been Christians a long time are tempted to go back to trying to please God through their own power. The church at Galatia was a prime example of this. They had been taught the true gospel of salvation alone, through grace alone and Christ alone. And yet Paul gets word that they're trying to intermingle and mix little works with that gospel of grace. And so he writes this letter of rebuke in Galatians 3.10. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, curses everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. If you sin even once, Paul says, if you're trusting in that, you're going to miss heaven. He goes on to say, verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessings given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that they by faith might receive the promise of the Spirit. And so this gospel of salvation through grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone is true for Jews and Gentiles alike and has always been. Now in sharp contrast to the way of works righteousness, Paul places the prayer of saving faith. The prayer of saving faith, which is our second point. Look at verse 6 back in Romans 10. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. 
Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which you're preaching. We are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now what Paul is doing is he's paraphrasing another one of Moses' writings, this time Deuteronomy chapter 30, where Moses is telling the people that God has given to them everything they need to please him. That is the law, all the revelation that they've needed. They do not have to keep searching for the truth. They have it. And Paul applies that very basic teaching to salvation, how to be made right with God. And he uses a term of contrast in verse six. The first word is what? But, that is instead. That is in, instead of trying to pursue righteousness on your own achievement, instead, the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say into your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. Now, what does he mean by that? It is somewhat confusing. So what he's saying is you don't have to do some great heroic act to be made right with God. Now, we tend to admire in the Western world men and women who have a spirit of adventure. When I was a boy, I read the entire story of the Lewis and Clark expedition. And it was amazing. It seemed like every day they were running from a grizzly bear or, or fighting Indians. It was just thrilling for a small boy to read. And so I admire people who have a sense of adventure, astronauts, um, people that go down into the depths of the ocean in submarines and find new species or climb great mountains. We have an admiration for those kind of people. But Paul says you don't have to do that. You don't have to discover something great. You don't have to descend, ascend into heaven or descend to the depths of the sea to find God. Um, in other words, you don't have to do some Herculean effort. You remember the story of Hercules from Greek mythology, right? Hercules was supposedly half man, half God, the son of Zeus and a human mother. And he was uh, mystifying and hated by Zeus's wife, his stepmother, and she couldn't beat him every way she tried. And so she decided to cast a spell on him to ruin his reputation. And in the midst of that spell, he became insane and murdered his own wife and children. And when he came to his senses, he was devastated by what he had done. And for the rest of his life, he tried to make up for those offenses. He went on a lifelong quest to make amends, in other words. And finally... Uh, he approached one of the other gods who told him he had to do the bidding of a Mycenaean king. And that king gave him labors to do, if you remember from literature. Twelve in all, originally ten, but he didn't count two of them, so he had to do twelve by the end of the day. One more difficult and absurd than the next. But the point is, human beings, like Hercules, want to participate in their own redemption. They want to do some grand gesture that somehow makes up for their deficits. And remember we've said when we do evangelism, very few people are going to say, I have never done anything wrong. They say it like this, I know I'm not perfect, what? But, there's always a but there, right? And, and so Hercules spent all of his life trying to earn forgiveness. Well, friends, he's not that different than your neighbor's. Maybe it's not that different from you who read the story of Christ and say, that's nice, appreciate you dying on the cross, but now let me fill up 
the rest. No, that's what Paul rebuked the church at Galatia for. You can't mix grace and works. It's grace plus nothing. And when we try to intermingle works righteousness with saving faith, it's like theological oil and water. Verse 8, what does it say? doesn't say you have to do some great Herculean task. What does it say? That is the Old Testament. It says the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Theologians speak of this concept as the imminence of God. The fact that he is near. Last Wednesday night, as we're studying in this room the attributes of God, we studied his omnipresence. That he's everywhere at once. That's hard to comprehend. David in his famous psalm says, if I make my bed in hell, you are there. Nowhere we can go to escape the presence of God. But that strikes fear in the heart of someone who's guilty, but it strikes comfort and joy in the heart of those who've been forgiven. That he's a very present help in time of trouble. He's not aloof. We serve a, a God who is near, not a distant deity. We don't serve a God who's hidden his salvation or his will in a haystack somewhere and he's watching from heaven as we play hide and seek, giggling when we get colder or warmer. No, that's not the God of the Bible. In fact, the God of the Bible is described by Paul in Philippians chapter 4 in a very familiar way. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, that your moderation be known to all men because the Lord is what? Near. You say, well, pastor, he's talking about the second coming is near. Well, I believe the second coming is near. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about comfort and peace in the midst of anxiety. And he's saying you can have peace that passes human comprehension if you know that the Lord is imminent, that he's not aloof, that he's ready to help and he's ready to save. So Paul is saying this as it relates to salvation. Appropriating God's righteousness is not through great effort or achievement, but through faith in Christ. Verse 9, he explains it. That is that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. At first, Paul seems to have things out of order because Jesus said out of the heart comes the proceeds from the mouth, Right? Well, Paul knows that, of course. He's just following the order of the Old Testament scripture that he's paraphrasing, that the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. And then he turns around and restates it the opposite way, showing us that it means the exact same thing. So what does it mean then if to be saved we have to declare Jesus is Lord? What does it mean to declare Jesus is Lord? Does it mean there's a magic phrase we have to say like abracadabra? Jesus is Lord, go to heaven. No, of course not. It's absurd. What does it mean to declare Jesus as Lord? Well, in the Roman world, to which Paul was living in and writing to, they knew exactly what he meant. They saw people do it every day. Caesar is Lord, they were commanded to say. That is, he is sovereign. He's God. Now, true Christians of that day, many of them were persecuted and many of them were martyred for their refusal to say Caesar is Lord. Polycarp, the most famous church father in the first century, contemporary of the Apostle John, in his 80s, universally respected in his city, was arrested for his refusal to declare that Caesar is Lord because he knew 
that if you declared Caesar is Lord, you were pledging allegiance to Caesar. And if Caesar is Lord, then someone else is not. And Polycarp declared and believed that Jesus is Lord. That's the only one he was to show his allegiance to. So in his 80s, he was burned at the stake and died because he understood what it meant to declare Jesus as Lord. James Boyce, pastor of a generation ago in Philadelphia, said there are three implications to saying Jesus is Lord. Number one is the implication of the person of Christ. You're declaring that the person of Christ is Lord. That is, he's more than a man, he's more than a prophet. Jewish people understood when they read the Old Testament scriptures that God is holy and he's distinct. And so they would not dare even speak his name. And so you'll find that in your English Bibles, often where God's name is, they just simply put the word Lord. And we understand that. It means he's God, he's creator, he's sovereign. So declare Jesus as Lord, you're declaring the sovereign, sovereignty and deity of Jesus. Secondly, the implication is the work of Christ. He is Lord in that he's over all. He has defeated death, hell, and the grave, and Satan himself. As Paul says again in Philippians 2, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess of things in heaven, earth, and under the earth that he is Lord. That he's exactly who he claimed to be. The third implication, boy says, is the implication of saying Jesus is Lord is you're declaring his right to rule. Not only of his universe, but specifically of your life. You're turning over control of your life to his lordship and sovereignty and of the church that you now belong to. He is Lord over that as well. And sometimes when people are giving their testimony, well-meaning people will say, when I was 17 years old, I made Jesus Lord. As if he wasn't Lord before you turned 17 or long before you were born. We don't make Jesus Lord. We know what they mean. God opened their eyes to show them that he is Lord. And they bowed their knee to his Lordship. The, the Bible knows nothing of having Jesus as your Savior, but not as your Lord. If he is your Savior, he is your Lord. And so Paul says you have to declare that Jesus is Lord. And he says you have to believe that God raised him from the dead. For many years I struggled with this verse. I thought, why in the world would Paul pick one narrow part of theology to hinge all of Christianity upon? Why the resurrection? And then I think back to 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, let's just turn there. Just a few pages forward in your Bible. You come to the next book of your Bible, which is 1 Corinthians. Come to chapter 15. And we most always read 1 Corinthians 15 around Easter because it talks about the resurrection and the necessity of it. But the first four verses of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is giving a synopsis of the whole gospel message. And he says to the church at Corinth, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, that is consistently over a long period of time. This is the message I've been preaching, which also you received in which also you stand by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. So why does Paul get to Romans 10 and he skips the perfect life and the 
literal death of Jesus. He goes right to the resurrection and says, you've got to believe that God raised him from the dead. I think what he's doing there is very obvious is he's drawing a big, bold summary line under all the gospel. And here it is. If you can believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, the rest of the gospel is a piece of cake. His virgin birth, his perfect life, his bodily death, and then the resurrection is the sum total of all that. He's not neglecting those other things. He's not saying they're not essential because in 1 Corinthians 15, he says this is the essential gospel. He's saying I'm including all of that when I say you've got to believe that God raised him from the dead. And so Paul is embracing the full gospel message. So what are the implications of the resurrection? Why is it so important to Paul? Well, if you believe that Christ is alive and that the tomb is empty, that means all of Jesus' claims are true. If Jesus is stronger than death, he can walk on water. If Jesus is stronger than death, he can cast out demons. If Jesus is stronger than death, he can heal leprosy. That's the point. But even greater implication, more important to our salvation, is that because the tomb is empty, it tells us that God the Father is satisfied with all the Son has done. We call that propitiation. The Father is satisfied. God, remember, is holy. He must punish sin. God is omniscient. He knows all sin that has been committed. And so he has to punish that sin. And so here's your option. Here's the two paths laid before you one more time. The broad path and the narrow. When you die, and you will, and I will, and we stand before the Lord, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You have one of two choices to say. One is, because of what I've done, my good works, my keeping of your commandments. And the other option is to say, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because I am in Christ through faith alone. What does Paul say about declaring your works righteousness before the Lord? He says, they're filthy rags, worthless, meaningless. But he says, if you put your faith and trust in Christ alone, you can say on that day, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. You don't have to fear death and you don't have to fear the judgment of God. Because Christ has taken that judgment. How do we know? Because the tomb is empty. God the Father is satisfied with the Son. Now, thirdly, the results of saving faith. Verse 9, back in Romans 10. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses resulting in salvation. So here are the two results of saving faith. One positive and one negative. Righteousness and salvation. We said, Pastor, Paul says those two things are the same. No, I said two sides of the same coin, right? Righteousness is the positive side. That is getting something good that you have not earned and you do not deserve. We call that grace. Grace is getting something good that you have not earned, you do not deserve. A gift, in other words, that's, that's a positive thing. And what do we get from Christ? His righteousness which is imputed to us by faith. Well, what's the negative? Well, it's salvation. What's the root of salvation? To save, to rescue, 
And so we like to say as Baptists, we were saved. Well, the question that is begged from that declaration is saved from what? I always ask people when they say I'm saved, saved from what? And sometimes they look at me sort of puzzled. What, what do you mean, saved from what? Sometimes they say I'm saved from myself, my own consequences of my own sin, or I'm saved from the devil. And look, all those things have a, an element of truth, but that doesn't really get to the point of what Paul's making here. When we are saved, we are saved not so much from our own consequences or from our own rebellion, or even from the devil, we are saved from the white, hot, perfect, holy wrath of God. That's what we're saved from. And so his righteousness is given to us positively, and his wrath is spared from us negatively, and those are the two sides of God's coin, grace and mercy. Grace and mercy, there's a nuance of difference. Grace is getting God's righteousness Mercy is God's withholding his wrath. That's the gospel. And what a glorious gospel and good news that it is. That leads us fourthly and finally to the availability of salvation. You may be saying, that sounds great, Pastor. Is that for me or is that for just you lifelong Baptists? Is that for me or is that for someone who has a theological education? Is that for me or is that for rich people or poor people or Something in between. Well, let's answer the question. Look at verse 11. For the scripture says, don't you love how Paul always makes his arguments with the scripture? That instructs us. We need to be masters of the word of God. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel 2.32 is what he's paraphrasing here. And so friends, how many times do you count the word all there? Unless there's any misunderstanding, he says this includes Jews and Greeks. Do you know how many categories of humans there were in Paul's mind? Jews and Greeks. <laughs> so he's saying this is available to everyone. And this means you. Now, if you are determined to stand before God's judgment and say, look what I did, he'll allow that. He'll spend eternity in hell. But if you'll understand what he's saying here, that you can't get to heaven on that road, and you'll admit to God that his assessment of you is correct, you are a rebel and a sinner, if you'll turn from those sins and come to Jesus on his terms, which is nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling, you'll be saved. That's a promise from God, and God has not failed on one promise yet. What a glorious truth that is. And here, Here's a little test that we do. We were talking about sending people to Kenya and Vietnam this afternoon. Here's the thing we talk about in our staff. If the message we preach is not true in Kenya as it is in Keller, as it is in China, David, as it is in Taiwan, as it is in Alaska where I'll be going at the end of the month, it's not the gospel. Because the gospel says whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
And aren't you glad that we get to participate a little bit of that in the here and now? As we look around, I see Hispanic brothers and sisters. I see Asian brothers and sisters. I see Anglo brothers and sisters. I see African brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters, right? Not because we all speak the same language, even born in the same country. We're brothers and sisters because we've been made brothers and sisters by our common faith in Christ alone. And if we try to mess it up by mingling a little works in there, depending on that in just a little bit, Paul said you'll mess the whole thing up. So you just have to present it in full dosage, in clarity, unabashedly, in full voice. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What about you, dear friend? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your good deeds? The fact that maybe you've kept them a little better than your neighbor? Are you trusting in the fact you've been a Baptist all your life or you were baptized as a child? None of that matters. Are you trusting in Christ alone and His finished work? Has His righteousness been given to you by faith? Is there evidence of that by fruit in your life, by the fact that you're making progress in sanctification? If the answer to those things is no, run to Jesus. Despair of anything else that you're trusting in at all and trust in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simple gospel. Lord, even a child can understand it. We can't get to heaven through a gate that allows us to take our works and our trophies and our bank accounts. We can only get to heaven and go through that narrow gate through Christ alone and what he's done. No matter how sincerely we believe that broad road is going to heaven, it's not. And no matter how difficult we perceive the narrow path to be, it gets us where we want to go. Father, I thank you that many in this room know you as Lord and Savior. They give evidence of it all the time through their life. And yet, Lord, we know when we gather in a room as large as this with this many people, there's likely more than one person who knows you not. So, Father, we know that you care about the one. In fact, Jesus, that shepherd that we sang about earlier and heard the bell ringers ring about is willing to leave the 99 to pursue that one and maybe your Holy Spirit is pursuing some soul here today convicting them of their personal sin guilt your holy righteousness and the judgment that awaits them after death Father I pray your spirit would take this word today and that it would have its intended work and Father that you grant faith and repentance to some here today Lord, we'll rejoice as the angels in heaven do over one soul that repents. We'll give you glory and praise your name through Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.